Well, hello everyone and thank you for joining me. If you weren't here on Sunday evening, uh, we didn't manage to record the sermon, so I'm doing it in this way, which is the first time I've done something like this, so forgive the poor camera quality if it's bad and if I fumble a little bit with my uh, PowerPoint and all that, but I'm trying something new, so we're going to see how it goes. But let's start with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you that we are able to meet in this way. Thank you that you have made it possible with technology that we can uh, still share messages, we can still share with one another, we can encourage one another, we can talk with one another. We bless you and give you thanks for that. I pray as I go through the sermon again, as for everyone who might be watching this, that you'll just open our hearts and ears to what you have to say to us and that your Holy Spirit will teach us as we look at your word this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so last week, well, <laughs> not last week, but the last time we spoke about the ancient nation of Israel, we looked at uh, them being a holy people, and that was part two, and we looked at the land. Remember, we had a two-part look at why they were holy people. Firstly, they had a law, which was a moral system that enabled them to live as holy people, that God had chosen them to be. Secondly, they had they needed land to be that nation, to live in that land, to make it work for them, to make it work for God ultimately. Well, today we're going to look at why Israel was actually an unholy people. Um, this is a quote I found this week from John Calvin. and says, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. When God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers rulers. And I thought that's quite profound, especially for us who live in a democracy where we actually vote in our leaders. What an indictment. Um, and we've spoken about this pattern in Israel, especially in Judges where it's most evident. They would not do what they're supposed to do and fall into trouble. God would send them a judge who would deliver them from that trouble. Often they, were, had, they had military problems, sometimes it was famine and drought, but mostly a military issue. And the judge would save them and deliver them, and they'd go back to serving God, and then they'd slump down, and the, that generation would be even worse. They'd commit even worse sins than the last one. So this just downward spiral that we see in the Israelite nation. So instead of going through each individual story, I want to look at the pattern that is evident here. Um, these are things that can shipwreck our personal faith, uh, things that can shipwreck a church, can shipwreck a nation, but it starts in our own hearts. Um, and it's, it's such a, a devastating pattern that we can see from the book of Judges, and it's so applicable to us today, and in the whole history of Israel, really, that we see. So I want to look at Judges. Let me switch over to the PowerPoint is the ancient nation of Israel. Now, if I click there, ah, look at that. Now, you can still see me over there. Hello. And <laughs> this is quite fun. I haven't done this before. An unholy people. So, we're looking today at Judges 2, verse 10 to 23. You can go read the whole book of Judges, but I think this little passage just summarizes what's going on here. Judges 2, 10 to 23. After that, the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. That was the generation of Joshua, the people who had entered the promised land, the people who were supposed to conquer it, but left some people there. It didn't go quite according to plan. Um, so this was the generation that had entered and taken control over most of 
the promised land. That whole generation, after they had been gathered up to their ancestors, they had died. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. What a scary thought. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the Lord God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Astoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies, as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who had oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods, serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Father God, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you will illuminate it for us, that your spirit will teach us and that we will be found to be good stewards of what you have revealed to us and what you are teaching us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so firstly, one with the pattern that we're speaking about, there are three things that are obvious in this passage that we can see. And the first one is um, that there's a breakdown of teaching and tradition. There's a breakdown of teaching and tradition. Teaching and tradition is a good thing. We hear so often that tradition is outdated, it's relevant, it's inapplicable to us, it's irrelevant, it doesn't make sense to us, it's unrelated to us. And especially in light of a progressing mankind, we think we're progressing, we're getting more advanced, we don't need all those old teachings and traditions anymore. Well, I want to ask you, are you talking about the tradition where grade 8s have to throw eggs at each other? <laughs> or are you talking about tradition where man is a man and woman is a woman? Are you talking about tradition where you must wear a suit and a tie to church and a cute little white hat? Or are you talking about the tradition that was taught where Jesus is the way, the truth and the life? Nobody comes to the Father except through Him. The old generation of Joshua, uh, of Moses had passed, oh sorry, of Joseph, yeah, Joseph. <laughs> the old generation of Joshua had passed away. They had passed away and the new generation did not know God nor his mighty works. That's what we are seeing here. 
They had not seen his provision for their parents and grandparents. They did not know him personally. So this begs the question, is that because God wasn't making as much effort with them? Or did the previous generation fail to teach the new generation his laws and commands? I favor the latter. Now, I don't want to be harsh on Joshua's generation, but we know they didn't quite conquer the promised land like they were supposed to. And the question still is, why did the new generation not know who God was? Why did they not know what God had done for their parents? And I think that's because the old generation of Joshua did not pass down that teaching and tradition as God had commanded them to in Deuteronomy 6. Where we see uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4, 5, and maybe 6, where uh, God says, um, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, the other Israel, the Lord is one. Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and, and uh, strength. And uh, then he says, Be careful to teach the commands that I've told you today to your children. When you're sitting at home, when you're walking in the road, when you go to bed, when you wake up, teach these things to your children. So, where was the teaching? What happened? Now look at this in Genesis eighteen nineteen. For I have chosen him, talking about Abram, I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abram what he has promised him. Where was it? What was happening? I've chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. This new generation was not keeping the way of the Lord. Where was the teaching and the tradition? In Joel 1, 2, 3, when Joel's prophesying the plague of locusts that's going to destroy the crops of Israel, says, Hear this, you elders, listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children. Let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. That's a locust plague. How much more? How much more should they have told their children about God's mighty deliverance from the hand of the Egyptians, from slavery in Egypt to a new promised land, how God had provided and protected them, uh, provided for and protected them in the desert? Why did they not tell their children that? How could they have neglected to pass down that teaching and tradition? Uh, oopsie. Proverbs 1, 8-9. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments around your neck. Think of those old Romans with their wreaths and all the jewelry. and It's just magnificence and splendor. And this is the analogy that the proverbist is making. <laughs> um, your father's instruction, your mother's teaching, wear them as graceful, uh, magnificent things. You know, it's, it's stuff that can adorn your being. That's how important it is. That's how beautiful it is to have instruction and teaching. Then we see here in Jeremiah 9 verse 3. They make ready their tongue like a bow to shoot lies. It is not by truth that they triumph in the land. They go from one sin to another. They do not acknowledge me, declares the Lord. How similar is that to our situation today? When we don't know God, that's what happens. We go from one sin to the next, to the next, to the next, and we're in this downward spiral into hell, into condemnation, into God's righteous and just wrath that is going to be poured out in the last days because we do not know the Lord and we do not acknowledge Him. 
We just live from one sin to another. Let's break that down a little bit. Truth there uh, in that verse is the word emunah. And that refers to a stability or faithfulness and specifically in conduct. So when Jeremiah is saying, it is not by truth that they triumph in the land. He's saying, it is not by this stability or faithfulness to the truth. It's that they've neglected the truth. It's not by truth because they've neglected it in their conduct. How they've lived hasn't demonstrated that they have been mighty to keep the truth. They were not mighty and they were not faithful for the truth of God. They just discredited it. They ignored it. They lived by their own truth. That's another big one today. Oh, but this is my truth. How I experience the world. My friend, if you want to live the world according to your truth, that's perfectly fine. But uh, you are headed for a very awful place if you continue like that. Firstly, because your truth might deny what's actually happening in reality. Secondly, your truth is probably not aligned with the Word of God. And anything that's not in the Word of God is outside the Word of God. And that's a problem. So they did not know God. They were not mighty nor faithful for His truth. So I ask, where was the Word of God that was supposed to saturate their hearts, saturate their lives, as God had commanded the Israelites to do. Tie it around your arms and keep it on your heads and <laughs> keep it in your hearts. And literally, you know, if you go to Israel today and you see the Orthodox guys, they will have these things strapped to their arms and to their foreheads and all sorts. Um, so where was this truth? Why was it not passed down? Now, here's the scary thing. If we're talking about consequences of not having truth passed down. A study from the Barna Group, which is a, a nice Christian surveying organization. They often conduct very practical surveys like this. But they found that where two parents were actively involved in the church, not coming to church, but involved, a part of the ministry and what was going on. Not, not saying pastors and deacons and all that. I'm saying just involved, whether it's you know, coming early to help set out chairs or whatever, but getting involved there, where two parents were actively involved in the church, their children were 93% likely or more likely to remain in the faith. Where one parent was active, that figure drops to 73%, so 20%. Where neither parent was particularly active in the church, so they both go to church, uh, they are maybe faithful to go to church, but they're not really involved, they just kind of go there sing praise songs, listen to the message, and then go home. That figure for their children drops to 53%. So where parents are just going to church and not really getting involved, but just by going to church and being in church, their children only have half the chance of sticking with their faith. Now in families where parents only attend church every now and then, most people will say, oh, I'm not really going to church because my um children are too young still, or I only go on Easter and Christmas, or whatever the case is, but where neither parent, uh, or where parents don't attend church regularly at all, that figure drops to 6%. We're not talking about agnostics or atheists or non-believers, we're talking about Christian families. In Christian families, where the parents only attend church once, twice, a month or so, or even a year, that 
figure for their children. The chance of their children staying in the faith drops to 6%. We are failing as parents and teachers, not because we do not know how to do it properly. That's an excuse. I don't know how to connect with my child. I don't know how to, how to make the word of God applicable to them. That's rubbish. We are not setting an example. We are not setting an example. We cannot keep entertaining children with funny skits, cutesy Bible crafts and feel-good songs. They need the word. And we can't take this responsibility lightly. And not only the children, but everyone, our peers, even those older than us. We need to be setting an example. We need to be living the teaching and traditions of God. We need to be passing on the teachings and traditions of God. Paul says here in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. You see, when we, we lose godly traditions and teachings, we fall for anything, we fall for everything, and we incur the Lord's righteous wrath. Why? Because we do not know Him, like I've said. When we do away with the teachings and traditions, we do away with God's revelation. We don't know Him. We don't know what He stands for. We don't know what salvation means. We don't know that we are sinners needing salvation. The new generations did not know Him. They did not acknowledge Him. There can be no excuse to ignore His revelation or neglect to diligently pass it on. Those of us who know, pass it on. Those who don't know, seek but it starts with a breakdown of teaching and tradition. Secondly, we look at the breakdown of leadership. And I'll put an adjective there. Holy leadership. Naturally, it leads to our second point. If we don't have parents to teach us, if we don't have examples to follow, if we're not learning from our examples, or we're not taking heed of the teaching and tradition that's being given to us, we are probably not going to end up respecting leadership. And we are not going to reap the benefits of a functioning society, especially in uh, the Christian faith. When we lose godly leaders, which starts with our parents, by the way, which starts with how we are to our mentees, if we are mentors, or our mentors or guardians. It starts with that. And when you don't have godly people whom we can follow, people have this habit of falling to pieces, which I think is true all over. Look at Exodus 18.21. Moreover, look for able men from all people, men who fear God, men who are trustworthy and hate to bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Man, we need that in South Africa. Men who are trustworthy, men who fear God, men who hate to bribe. Whoa, <laughs> that sounds like South Africa almost. Proverbs eleven fourteen: where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in abundance of counselors, there is safety. Now, I want to make this clear. Not an abundance of bureaucrats. Not an abundance of politicians. Not an abundance of, of pumped up egos uh, of leaders who want power and authority. Abundance of counselors. Counselors who give guidance. Counselors who help people back onto the right path. Counselors who will pass on that teaching and tradition. Where in an abundance of such people, there is safety. Even more so in our church. Leadership in our church. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. 
for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Remember, the nation of Israel did not have an executive government. God was the head of this, excuse me, of this theocracy. And they were to be a nation of priests who were living holy lives as God's chosen people. They didn't need an executive government other than God. But as we see, they were unfaithful in keeping their traditions and teachings, and naturally they became unfaithful to their leaders. Where there's unfaithfulness in tradition, there's unfaithfulness uh, to leadership and authority. And we know that all authority comes from God. Our ultimate authority, our example that we need to follow is Christ Jesus. He needs to be our leader. He needs to be our example. Second Peter 2.21 For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. But they weren't leaders yet to live holy lives, so they fell into bondage. God gave them over to the enemies in famine and hardship. When he heard their groaning, he had pity on them and sent them a judge, Shofet, which also means something like a governor. But God raised up the judge. It wasn't the judge who became mighty. God anointed the judge and rose him up. He was the source of power and anointing. God, not the judge. However, the people did not want that spiritual leadership. The judge was supposed to act as a spiritual leader to bring the people back into, into, uh, into line, back onto the road. The, the judge was a person who said, hey, wake up, chaps. We are not being a holy nation of priests. We are abandoning God and we are living like the nations around us. Get it together, man. But they didn't want spiritual leadership. They wanted the military. They wanted the political. They wanted the social advantages of leadership. They wanted those judges to save them. They wanted judges to make their life better for them. They wanted the judges to make their lives in the land, apart from God, better for them, numbing their consciences down. And we see that when the judge died, they fell into even worse sin. They did even worse than the generation before them. And isn't this, unfortunately, the pattern in so many Christian lives today? We only want Christ to, uh, for the advantage of numbing our conscience. We want Christ so that we can say, okay, my sins are, not, well, I'm not going to hell. I don't have to worry about my sins because Jesus did something or other. So great, thanks God. But that's a horrible distortion of the gospel message. But at the end of the day, when our advantages run dry as the judges died, we also slip back into worse sin and bondage. Oh God, help me feel better about lying. And then we sing a happy praise song, um, fire fall down, yay. Uh, and then we go home and we're feeling great. And then in the week we start lying and stealing again. And then we come back and we're like, oh Jesus, please help me feel better. I did this and this and this. And we sing a worship song or read a cutesy verse that's taken out of context. Wow, ah, feeling good again. Thanks God. Then the next week we even in <laughs> even more sin. It's that downward spiral. It's that downward spiral. We've seen judges. It's the same in many Christian lives today, unfortunately, Christian lives today. The Israelites did not return to God through holy leaders. They used them. And that's because they couldn't recognize holy leaders and they didn't have holy leaders because there was a breakdown in tradition and teaching. 
Lastly, we have a breakdown of spiritual purity. We read that the Israelites did not drive out all the Canaanite locals as God had commanded them to. Now that's already a problem. God said, you need to get rid of these guys. You are a holy chosen nation. You're not going to behave like them. You're not going to talk like them. You're not going to sing like them. You're not going to eat like them. You're not going to kill your children like them. You need to, you need to drive them out. And the really, really awful ones, you just need to like wipe out completely. And yet they didn't do that. They worshipped the same false gods. They partook in the same evil rituals. They lived the same evil unholy lives as the nations around them. There was no distinction between the holy nation of God and the pagan nations around them. And that's because there was a breakdown in their spiritual purity. What an awful thing to think about. Imagine somebody looking at you who says, I'm a believer, I trust in God. Can they tell that there's a difference between you and the world? Or is there no distinction? Because if there's no distinction, there's a big problem. Something's gone wrong. Your spiritual purity has broken down. So what did God do? He left them there. He left the Canaanite locals there to see if they would return to God's way, to test them, to see would, would we come back, would they come back to God. And when they kind of did under the judges, he wiped out their enemies. But when they carried on living their early, unholy lives, they would come back and cause them even more affliction. The Israelites wanted the Canaanites because it was nice to live like them. So God gave them the worst punishment. He let the Canaanites stay. Men want their sin. Men don't always want a savior. We want to, I'm not saying men, I'm talking about mankind. We, we like sin. We don't want a savior. We can sort ourselves out. And here's the scary thing. God allows it. That's a gift of free, free will and free choice. God allows it. Romans 1, 25 Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the, the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Just look at that contrast, the glory of the immortal God. They exchanged that for images made to look like a mortal human being, birds, animals, reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. What a tragic turn of events. See, they didn't live like the Canaanites and we don't live like the world because it's any less difficult or any easier or living uh, according to God's law, any less difficult or easier. We're not talking about a degree of difficulty. We are talking about nature. Now, this is where people get it wrong. I don't want to live because it's so live um, as a Christian because it's quite difficult to keep the Ten Commandments. I'm sure most of you have heard that at some stage in your life. It's difficult to keep the Ten Commandments. But it's not about that scale of difficulty. It's got to do 
with our natures. Now, as, as humans, we have a sinful nature, and that sinful nature naturally tends towards the world, tends towards sin, tends towards unholiness, tends towards paganism, tends towards evil, ugly, dirty things, because that's how we are geared, that's how we are wired. But if we are new creations in Christ, we've got that new nature. We've got the Holy Spirit living in us. And these two can't work together. They are opposed to one another. So, with God, He's helping us pull us this way. Yes, we're going to stumble. But instead of stumbling down, we're going to stumble up. Because this new nature is pulling us towards the things of God. We're still contending with this evil nature. But with those of us who don't have that spiritual purity, with, with those who aren't, um, who aren't pursuing this new nature in Christ, who aren't uh, letting the Holy Spirit work in their lives, who feel more comfortable in the sinful nature, who want it more, we get pulled towards the world. And that's, if we aren't careful, we're naturally going to incline towards the world because of our sinful natures. That's why it's so important to guard our hearts and minds, to watch what we eat and look at and do and speak and hear. We need to protect ourselves because we have this sinful nature built into us still. And if we aren't careful, it's going to pull us to the things of this world. When we don't have complete spiritual purity, the door is wide open for sin. Just as one tiny drop of ink can spoil a whole jug of water, so it is with our hearts. It's not about the quantity or quality of our sin. It's the fact that we have sin, that we have sinful natures. We compromise on the gospel. When the Israelites had faith in God, true faith, like Caleb and Joshua said, let us go in and take the land. Remember, they got sent out all the spies, and only Caleb and Joshua said, let's go. And the other one said, no, but those Philistines and things are too big with big clubs. They're going to make our heads sore and give us a lummy on our arm or whatever. But Caleb and Joshua said, no, the Lord has given a land of good things. We should press in and make them ours. That was when the Canaanite was out and God was in. That was when the compromise was out and God was in. That's when the sin was out. And spiritual purity was in. When their trust was in Almighty God to deliver them, that was when God was in. But when the Canaanite was in, God was out. When they left the Canaanite there, God was out. When they compromised with things of the world, the things of the nations around them, God was out. Even just a little bit, God was out. How often do Christians also give up the fight how often do we allow a little bit of error and compromise here and there just because it's convenient at that moment? When we give up our spiritual purity, we give up our God. 1 Kings 18.21 Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. How long are we going to waver between two opinions? Choose. Do you want God or do you want the world? 
Be like Joshua when he stood up and said, As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. If you're going to say that, then do it. Don't waver between these two opinions. If you're happy with your sinful nature, then stay with it and head to that doom and destruction and God's wrath. But if you know that He's made a plan for you, if you know that you can't keep living with the sin, if you know you need salvation, you know you need a Savior that can only be found in Christ Jesus, the only way to the Father, then stick with Him and stay with Him and pursue Him. Colossians 3.5 Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Put it to death. Cut it off. Starve it. Stop feeding it. Stop entertaining it. Stop giving it room to maneuver and operate in your hearts. And here's a very sad one. Second Chronicles 10.13 So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord and that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. What tragedy! Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord. Now the truth is, the truth is, with our sinful natures, we break faith with the Lord almost every single day. Almost every single day, there's an opportunity to compromise. There's temptation to sin. There's temptation to to just ignore God and carry on with the sinful nature. But one day, it's not going to work out. We can't keep breaking faith with the Lord. We need to repent. We need to submit ourselves to Him. We need to humble ourselves before Him and say, Father, forgive me. I am a sinner. Lord Jesus, forgive me. When we start giving up the small things, the big things are much easier to let go. The Israelites did not keep spiritual purity as we can see. They were supposed to be a holy people and they ended up becoming an unholy people. They did not guard their hearts and minds from the evil around them. They were not careful to know God and keep His law and teach it to their children. They were not careful to love only their God, the Lord, with all their heart, mind and strength. They compromised their spiritual purity and in doing so they gave up their God and they became an unholy people. So to summarize... With our look at Israel being an unholy people, it starts with a breakdown of teaching and tradition. Moves on to the breakdown of leadership, holy, godly leadership. Ends with the breakdown of spiritual purity. Now these things can happen all at the same time. They can happen with some distance in between them. Uh, With the old generation, you might say it started with a breakdown of spiritual purity and leadership and teaching and tradition. And that's why they didn't get past. And with the new one, uh, they didn't have teaching and tradition. They didn't have leadership. They didn't have spiritual purity. Um, But these are all related. They can happen at the same time or space. But if you've seen these things in your lives, if you've seen these things in your church, you need to wake up and do something about it. Because this is what leads to the fall of our, our hearts. This is what leads to the fall of churches and what leads to the breakdown and collapse of nations. The Israelites were supposed to be a kingdom of priests. And what happened? This happened. And they lost out. So, I want to encourage you as well with this sermon. 
the word we, I was praying, I was trying to think of the word and I couldn't get it. Eventually it came to me. Intentional. We need to be intentional with God. What does intentional mean? It means making a conscious effort to pursue Him. A conscience, conscious effort to, uh, to commit ourselves, to throw ourselves behind something wholeheartedly. But it starts with that effort, with that commitment, that, in, that intention, <laughs> that determination to do it. Be intentional with God. Be intentional with His Word, His revelation. Be intentional with holy leadership. Examples, looking to holy examples and godly examples, but yourself being a godly example. And be intentional with your spiritual purity. Protect your hearts and your minds from sin. Protect your hearts and your minds from that stuff that pulls us towards the world because of our sinful nature. Be intentional with God and be intentional about your faith. Amen. God willing, next week we will, or this week Sunday, we will look at the beginning of the monarchy with the Israelites, um, God willing, to that our technology works. But if it doesn't, we know that this works. I hope it has been an enjoyable watch on Facebook and YouTube. And if you're listening to it on podcasts, I might have gone a little bit long. I apologize for that. But thanks for joining me. Let's end with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for this message. We know that we are sinners. We know that we have sinful natures. But we also know that you have saved us from that. That you have made a way for us through the precious blood of your only Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that your grace never runs dry. Thank you that your mercy is new every single morning. Thank you that your love is steadfast for us. That you loved us. That you have called us. That you made a way for us. Father God, we know you've called us now as well to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a royal generation who has been called to show forth your praises, who has been called to demonstrate your glory, who has been called to build your kingdom. Father, forgive us where we've gone astray, we pray. Forgive us where we've neglected your tradition and teaching, where we've neglected your uh, holy leadership that you've given to us, where we ourselves have neglected to be responsible and godly leaders and examples for others. Forgive us where we've compromised on our faith, on our purity, where we've, where we've just looked at small things and given up with the small things. Forgive us, we pray. Help us to get back onto track. Help us to guard our hearts and minds. Help us to take you seriously, to take your word seriously, to take this position that we have as citizens of heaven in your kingdom seriously. We know you've given a land of good things, a promised land. Maybe it's not yet now, but we know that we are looking forward to eternity with you, to just rejoice in your magnificence and your glory forever. It's coming. We know that you have given a land of good things, Father God. Help us to press forth. Help us to be committed. Help us to be intentional with you, we pray. Thank you for your work in our lives. Thank you for this, this church and uh, this technology that we can share like this. Thank you for those of us who um, are involved with churches, who are being godly examples for our children, for our peers. We bless you and give you thanks for those. Thank you that you, your Holy Spirit is operating in our hearts. 
We bless you for all of this. We give you thanks. All glory, praise and honour to you. The name that is above every other name. The name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Saviour. Thank you that you have called us. Thank you that you're looking after us. Thank you that you have gone before us. We give you thanks and we bless your mighty name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You are the head and not the tail, first and not last. Blessed as you come, blessed as you go. In Jesus' name. Go well, go with God and be intentional with him. Bye-bye.